Hello everyone, good to be with you today. My name is Renji, I'm one of the pastors here and I am so excited to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're joining us live in the watch party, I'd love to interact with, uh, I'd love to have you interact with us via chat. We did this a couple weeks back um, and I think it's just helpful to get an understanding of where people are at as we're coming together. So on a scale of one to 10, one being horrible, 10 being amazing, uh, just write a number in there on how you're doing this morning. Uh, you don't have to give a reason, just put the number in there. And then after you've done that, uh, type in something that you have been thankful for as you think about this week or even this morning. It could be a phrase, it could be a word, um, it could be an accomplishment, it could be a person. Uh, when you have it, throw it in the chat. Um, this last week, uh, I have been in a couple of Zoom meetings for uh, teams at, at, that I'm working with at Multnomah. And often, when we start these Zoom meetings, we tend to give a, a rating of how we're doing. And this past week, as we went around asking people to rate their, their day, uh, we were filled with twos and threes. And I think it's because people are processing the unrest that is happening in our nation and in our city. Uh, and as we, we think about um, our friends and our family and our coworkers and, and students who feel that their community has been neglected and unheard, uh, it's, it's really hard, it's really painful. And so we grieve with them. Uh, one of the things that I'm thankful for is what we did last Sunday, uh, slowing down and addressing what is happening as a community and amplifying, amplifying the voices of our black community members to hear from their hearts and how they're processing what is going on. I was able to point my coworkers and some of my friends to the link and to allow them to use it to help them uh, process and to share with their, their networks. Uh, I'm so proud of, of what Village is doing. Um, but I also recognize that some of us might feel unsettled about what we did uh, last week. I think it comes out of concern that um, are we being distracted from what we're called to do as a church or are we not on point on, on centering on, on the gospel? But I want you to know very clearly from one of the pastors here at Village, we do things like last week because it directly flows from our commitment to the gospel and from our commitment to be true followers of Jesus in this world. And I think it's really fitting that we're in the story of Exodus as all of these things are happening around us because I think it's so relevant to what we're facing today. The Bible is alive and it's active and if we are coming with it and approaching it with the posture of receptivity and inviting the Spirit to teach us, it can do so and illumine truth to us so that we can interact and walk in faithfulness to God. Next week, Pastor Ken is gonna be looking at the, the Red Sea story, but for today, I want us to look at the overall story uh, of the 10 plagues, specifically the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. We're gonna be anchoring in on one verse, but I want to have that larger story in mind because it spans four to five chapters. And I know many of us are familiar with this story about the plagues and, and God and what he, he did in Egypt. But I don't want to allow the familiarity to cause us to disengage. Please come with an invitation of the Spirit to teach and to challenge us. I want us to anchor in on Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. 
and allow that to shape our reflection. This is what it says. The Lord is speaking here. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to this land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. So let's remember what is happening in this story. At the end of Genesis, Jacob and his sons are in Egypt, and Joseph is in a position of power, and they have favor with the Egyptians. And simply by turning one page, we fast forward in time 400 years, and what is happening is very different than a posture in a place of favoritism. The Israelites are enslaved. How did this happen? Well, when we read the first chapter of Exodus, it tells us that they grew in number. What happens when an immigrant population grows in number? They're seen as a threat. So what did the empire do in order to respond to this threat? They treated them as if they could control them. And they they used them for their own systems. And slowly, over time, they were enslaved. And we don't know how fast and how quick this happened, but what we find is as we're reading in Exodus, when we're in these pages, it has been multiple generations of the people being enslaved. What does this do to people's communal identity to be enslaved, to be treated as property, to be treated as less than human, to have your life be disregarded? And beyond that, what does that do to your faith? The people of Israel have heard the stories of, their, of the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that was 400 years ago. There could be a temptation or a tendency to treat them as simply tales and stories of old. But where is God now? To everyone else looking in, the Hebrew God was weak and enslaved, just like their people. But this is what God says in chapter 6. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Look at how God speaks of this oppressed and enslaved people. I will take you as my own. This is the first time the word redeem is used in all of scripture. And I think that should cause us to pause because the cultural context and the meaning of this word is to buy back a slave. This story needs to be in our minds when we think about the ideas of redemption later on, when we think about the fact that Jesus redeems us, the story needs to shape that. God sees the people of Israel as valuable that he would purchase them and make them his own. The passage sets up the confrontation between God and Pharaoh, and I want us to unpack that confrontation. 
It's between the empire of Egypt and the kingdom of God. In that day and time, the empire of Egypt was seen as wealthy, as powerful, and in the world's eyes, thriving. This is the empire versus a god of an enslaved people. Pharaoh is depicted as the most evil character we have encountered when we read the Bible so far. So he is being raised up as a symbol of the mindset of an evil empire. The God of the enslaved Hebrew goes to battle with this powerful Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And God sends 10 plagues and they're severe, but they're divine justice against one of the worst oppressors. And all of them are aimed at redeeming an enslaved people and holding accountable those who have mistreated fellow human beings. When you read the story, Pharaoh is presented with a chance to listen to Moses, to listen to God, but he completely disregards them and ignores them. So God uses the plagues to disrupt their world, their economy, their ritual practices, the very way of life. Think about what it would have been to be an average Egyptian before the first plague. Sure, you know about the Hebrews, but why would you pay any attention to them? Why would you listen to them? But imagine, as you're on your way to the Nile and you begin to draw water for yourself, and as you put your your bucket in the river and draw it out, it is blood. Now you're paying attention. And each of the plagues, God is systematically taking down the ways of Egypt and their gods. Why did God send locusts? Why flies? Why frogs? Why cattle? The gods of Egypt were depicted with heads of locusts, of flies, of frogs, of of cattle. Through each of the plagues, God is swiftly and precisely taking down the symbols of power, of wealth, of prosperity, of security, of health, on behalf of an enslaved people. These were signs to Egypt, but they're also signs to the people of Israel. They were a sign that God is alive, that he is real, that he is powerful, and that he's on the move. It was a sign to the Israelites that they could give their loyalty, their allegiance, and their trust to Yahweh. What's fascinating as you read and you study this, many scholars, when they look at the early Hebrews, they see them as not monotheistic in that they believed in only one God. That is a development that is much later in their history. Scholars would describe them as henotheistic in that they believed that there was a pantheon of gods But there was one God, Yahweh, that was above all of the other gods, and he was to be worshipped. You see this tension throughout the Old Testament, that the people of Israel have a tendency to give their loyalty, their trust to other deities, to place their faith in other gods. Through these ten plagues, Yahweh shows his superiority. And through this victory, the question rings out, Will the Hebrews place their loyalty in Yahweh? As you read the story, in the midst of the miraculous, the people are doubting. They're discouraged. They're conflicted. They don't always place their loyalty in God. And we might be tempted to look down upon them or just to think, come on, just trust. You're seeing all these things happen. But remember where they're coming from. Years upon years of not seeing God work. 
Don't we also look around at the mess and the brokenness of our world and we have a tendency to be discouraged and doubt? I have come to appreciate the humanness of how Israelites are being depicted in the Bible because if I'm honest with myself, they stand as a mirror against me and where my honest thoughts are. This question of loyalty is continually presented throughout Exodus and throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, as we read the Gospels, it's presented in the Gospels. See, the saving acts of God in Exodus stand as a metaphor for what God is going to be doing for the entire world through Jesus. At the center of the gospel is the declaration that Jesus is the promised king who has come to redeem his people and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Through the cross and the resurrection, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus has won a victory against evil and is inviting all people to join his family. The work of Paul and the other apostles is to go out from Jerusalem to announce this king and his reign and rule and to invite others to give their allegiance and ultimate loyalty to Jesus. So the question that is raised through the victory of Jesus is will we place our loyalty to him? We can read the story of Exodus and look at them as primitive people, simple people who believed in many gods, who worshiped other things. But we do that too. It might look different, but the principle remains the same. There are things in our lives that we place our trust, our security, our hope, and and maybe it's not instead of Jesus, but it's in addition to Jesus, which means that our loyalties can be divided. If we're not proactively examining where our allegiance and loyalty lies, then we're in a dangerous place. It is dangerous to think that simply because intellectually we acknowledge that there is one God, that our actions actually demonstrate true loyalty to him. What if my affections and actions actually reveal that I trust in money, or I trust in image, or in accomplishments, or in status, or in self? What if I peel back my heart? Would I find where my true loyalty lies? Let's keep going in this. Is my highest loyalty to the kingdom of God, or is it to my own tribe, my own group, my own people, my own ethnicity? Do I place a greater loyalty to my own people over others? Where do my affections and actions reveal? Do the pain and suffering of my group or my people outweigh the suffering of others? Does my loyalty to the kingdom of God, which has no borders, is it supersede by the loyalty to my nationality, my customs, to my way of life? Am I willing to confront the areas in my life where my loyalties are divided? Am I even proactively looking and examining where they might be in conflict? Do I acknowledge the place where I give into biases, into favoritism? into ethnocentrism. If we're paying attention to Exodus, these are the questions that are at play in the story. The confrontation between empire and kingdom is still happening today. God has already won the victory through the cross and resurrection, but the battle for our loyalty and allegiance is still waging on. 
Which side do my affections and actions reveal that I'm on? We need to allow the Spirit and the Word of God and the community and the fellowship of believers to reveal to us the ways in which our loyalties are divided. And then through grace and confession, repentance and forgiveness, we strive to work towards aligning our hearts to Jesus. Isn't this what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Isn't this what it means to continually need the gospel? I believe God knew about the racial unrest that our nation and our city would experience before it even happened. And I believe that he was working and moving in the hearts of our pastors and and leaders who felt led to step into a series of exodus. So we must allow these words to come alive and shape how we're seeing our world today. In the Exodus story, God disrupts the social, economic, and political systems of an empire and highlights the lives and experience and voice of forgotten, overlooked, and oppressed people. And this God listens, has compassion, and moves to them. As we wrap up, let me read a verse that shows up later in Exodus, but I think it helps us see where this story is moving. Exodus 19, God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, Scholar Carmen Imes, a graduate of Multnomah University and a leading Old Testament scholar, says that her favorite Hebrew word is in this passage. It's the word segula, which is translated in English as treasured possession. This word refers to the king's personal treasury, but when it's applied to people, it speaks of a people who are in a covenant and personal relationship with the king and have been entrusted with kingly responsibilities. That this king is partnering with them to act on something. This is beautiful when we think about this in light of the Exodus story. God doesn't simply rescue the Hebrews from slavery. He wants them to be his secular, his very special people, his beloved ones who are entrusted with a kingly responsibility. They are going from slaves to being treasured, from enslaved to empowered partners of God. And what is their responsibility? The passage says that they are to be kingdom of priests to the entire world. Think about for a moment what a priest does. They are the connection between God and humanity. They are the mediators. They are to listen, they are to pray, they are to act on behalf of God and the people. For Israel, the priests were the ones who enacted justice. They were the peacemakers, not simply peacekeepers. There's a big difference, but they are the reconcilers to bring people together. So out of a gratefulness for God, for their redemption, they are being redeployed for the work of redeeming others. So Jesus, you are the king of kings and Lord of lords. And you deserve every piece of our heart. You deserve our ultimate loyalty. And you have called us in 1 Peter as your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that we may declare the praise of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. For we were once not a people, but now we are a people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So let us live in this reality, Lord. May we declare those praises through our affections and our actions. And may we reflect as a way of repentance and resistance against the empire. May we research and read as a way of repentance and resistance against the empire. And may we respond to your grace as a way of repentance and resistance against the empire. Come and tear down every wall that we have built up and unleash us into this world as your empowered priests. Amen.